Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa, and I'm your host Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Huko, and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Rwanda marks 20th anniversary of genocide. Kenya steps up its fight against al-Qaeda-linked al-Shabaab rebels and concerns over escalating violence in the Central African Republic. In economics, Nigeria overtakes South Africa as Africa's largest economy. And in sports news, Lithuania pulls out all the stops to beat South Africa. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Rwanda today commemorates the 20th anniversary of the genocide in which 800,000 people died. President Paul Kagame will light a flame with that will burn for 100 days the length of time it took government soldiers and Hutu militia to kill hundreds of thousands of people. Wreaths will also be laid before ceremonies in Kigali's football stadium, where UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and several African leaders are due to attend. Ban has affirmed his commitment in unveiling yet another way forward, tackling any mass killings anywhere in the world. I'm going to reaffirm the international community's strong commitment that never again, and this should never happen in human history. We have learned the tragic and hard lessons from 1994 uh, Rwandan genocide. Another one repeated just one year after in Srebrenica in 1995. There are still, there may be some symptoms uh, somewhere Uh, We have to prevent such intolerable genocide. Sudan is set to free some political prisoners and allow political parties to be active without restrictions as part of national reconciliation efforts. The announcement came in a surprising three-hour televised meeting with representatives of more than 50 parties and groups. Al-Bashir also pledged to help create a suitable atmosphere for a comprehensive national dialogue. The Sudanese leader called on media to contribute to the success of the national dialogue. The release of the prisoners is the latest move by al-Bashir to push the national dialogue forward. Two more people have been killed and five Others wounded as clashes resumed in Egypt's southern city of Aswan. The deaths yesterday brings to 25 the number of people killed in the clashes between the Nubian and the Bani Helal clans. The fresh clashes came despite a beefed-up police presence in the city to end the fighting. Egypt's interior ministry said the fighting began on Thursday over the harassment of a girl. The first defence witness for murder accused, uh, murder accused South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius is to take the stand today as his murder trial resumes after a week's break. The witness is expected to be pathologist Jan Bota, 
One of the Pistorius lawyers, Brian Weber, has said the pathologist has personal reasons as to why he has to take the stand first. Pistorius himself is expected to be the next to testify after Borta. This will mark the first time the Paralympian speaks in public at any length since he killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, in February last year. Pistorius is charged with murdering Steenkamp as well as some gun-related offences. Court resumes today after Judge Tokozi Lemasipa called a week's adjournment because one of her assessors had fallen ill. A criminal law expert, Professor Stephen Dyson, says Pistorius will have a hard time explaining why he didn't see that his girlfriend, Rivestian Kamp, was not in bed and why he didn't check if she was in bed. A question which was raised by the bail magistrate was why did the accused not uh, first check that the noise he heard was Ms. Steenkamp and why did he leap to the conclusion that it was an intruder? And so that would be a question which the court would like to hear an answer to, in my view. And finally, honeymoon murder accused Shreen Dewan is expected to fly out under escort from Britain this evening and arrive in South Africa tomorrow morning. He's being extradited from the UK to be charged with the murder of his wife Annie in 2010 in Kailicha, Cape Town. However, Dewani will have to undergo a psychiatric assessment in South Africa to determine if he's fit to stand trial. Three South Africans have already been convicted of a murder. From London, correspondent Natalie Fury reports. For three years, his lawyers fought against the 33-year-old being sent to stand trial in South Africa. Last month, Mr. Dewani lost his final appeal at the High Court in London. Dewani's lawyers were looking to halt his extradition on medical grounds, and medical experts from both his defence and the South African prosecution agree he has been suffering from depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. If he is not fit to stand trial within 18 months, he will be returned to the UK as agreed by the South African and British authorities. But his departure to South Africa could bring Annie's family one step closer to finding out the truth surrounding her murder. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A week of official mourning to mark the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide begins today. Various high-ranking dignitaries, including heads of state and government, have been flocking in since yesterday. United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is expected to unveil new UN commitment to prevent any further occurrence of genocide in the world. From Kigali, Silvanus Karamera reports. The journey of 20 years has seen a lot of blames on the international community due to its failure in rescuing victims from hands of perpetrators in 1994. The United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on a number of occasions confessed the weakness of international community, especially United Nations. Upon his arrival in Kigali yesterday, Ban Ki-moon affirmed his commitment in unveiling yet another way forward in tackling any mass killings anywhere in the world. I'm going to uh, reaffirm the international community's uh, strong commitment that never again 
And this should never happen in human history. We have learned the tragic and hard lessons from 1994 uh, Rwandan genocide. Another one repeated just one year after in Srebrenica in 1995. There are still, there may be some symptoms uh, somewhere. Uh, we have to prevent the such uh, intolerable genocide. However, with never again being a brand, especially in international fora, such atrocities and tragedies have consistently featured in many parts of the world. President Paul Hagame, who is expected to lead the commemoration mass, and again later in the day, disclosed his appreciation to the UN Secretary General, adding that though he's been coming to Rwanda before, this time is special. Secretary General has been here a couple of times, many times before, but this is different and has its own special significance that uh, the, the Secretary General is here uh, on this occasion to be with Rwandans, to be with the nation that has uh, suffered in this way and renders his uh, uh, support and that of the institutions, uh, the, the, the UN institution he, he, he heads in the name of uh, uh, the global world we live in. So I just wanted to reiterate uh, my thanks and on behalf of the whole country. The event to commemorate the genocide is expected to take place at the National Stadium in Kigali this morning and graced by tens of heads of state and a wide range of international diplomats. Scores of genocide survivors are expected to share their experiences in the past 20 years, especially those who survived the Inheram Hutu militia after abandoned by the UN peacekeepers in Kigali. The 20th Genocide Combination Week was preceded by a three-day international forum which took place in Kigali and attended by scholars, researchers, university lecturers, and policymakers. Silvanus Kremera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. A woman who survived the Rwandan genocide of 1994 has urged people to demonstrate unity and love at a meeting at the United Nations. Around 800,000 people perished in Rwanda over a period of 100 days in one of the worst cases of mass killings in modern times. Immaculate Libagiza participated in the launch at the UN of a series of events called Kwibuka 20 to mark the 20th anniversary of the genocide. Kwibuka means remember in Kenya, Rwanda, Rwanda's national language. Christian Silviero asked Libagiza, a genocide survivor and author, what her message was to the gathering. My message was a message to remember, but to remember the lessons. And to remember what happened, of course, but direct our memory towards what have we learned, how can we use for the good. You know, I wanted to remind the people, let's love each other. If the genocide happened, it's because the people who, in the leadership, and the people who helped them, failed to love one another. What can we do today? Not to love, like, just being weak, because sometimes you meet somebody who can easily kill you. We have to be smart. We have to see what's going on, who we're dealing with. But just have good intentions. I remember after the genocide, when my heart was free and I couldn't hate them really, I, I found forgiveness in my heart. But my reason still wanted them to go to prison. 
not what really changed was before I wanted them to go to prison so that they can hurt. They can see what I went through. They can be beaten up. When my anger was gone, I wanted them to go to prison to protect people, to protect those they, they can hurt. I wanted them to go to prison to remember what they have done so that they never do that again, so they can change their hearts. So the message is all of us, when we do wrong, how we can hurt other people that we can become a genocide or can hurt even one individual. And that's so important. And the unity to love everybody. We discriminate one another. For what? We are created by the same God. We cry for the same reason. We love for the same reasons. And when we love each other, it's much better. Look, today we are speaking in United States for what happened in Rwanda 20 years ago. People, Americans, are crying here today. That's when you see in a small way what happened to anybody, any country, it affects other people. And how about for you, how have you managed to rebuild and move forward? What does this 20 years mean for you? It means for me to keep going and to really care for, for humanity, to do my part. I don't know when I will die. We all die. But to just continue to do. I have written seven books, and most of them is about faith, it's about love, and about the genocide in Rwanda, and the lesson we learn, we should learn. And I just, I'm revived. I want to help more those who need help. I want to care more than for those who need care. And I want to write more because you realize the world is so much one. People are one. When a neighbor hurts, we hurt. And we should take it that way. That was Immaculate Libagiza, a Rwandan genocide survivor, talking to Christian Silviero. It's 7.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. 20 years on and barely 70 individuals out of thousands involved in the 1994 massacres in Rwanda have been convicted by the UN-backed court that was designed to deliver justice. But Human Rights Watch says significant progress has been made in national and international courts to bring to justice those responsible for the genocide. A briefing paper titled Justice After Genocide 20 Years On focuses on the achievements of Courts in Rwanda, at the UN's International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and in other countries to hold to account those who planned, ordered and carried out the genocide. For more on this, Jose Dingake spoke to Karina Tetsakian, a senior Africa researcher and Great Lakes expert at Human Rights Watch. I think there are a number of factors behind the delays and it is true that some of these cases have really dragged on a, a long time. In the case of the International Tribunal, it, it is a very bureaucratic process, it's a very slow process, I mean partly for good reason obviously because the correct procedures do have to be respected but it's true that some of these cases have dragged on for many years, it's quite a cumbersome process. In the case of some of the, the trials in other countries, I mean one of the difficulties has been the investigation phase actually because as you can imagine it is not easy to carry out investigations into these crimes. They are not only serious but but complex crimes that often require investigations in Rwanda. It's not always easy to find witnesses, to find credible independent witnesses and piecing all the different elements together. This can be a very time-consuming and laborious task and obviously the cases should not be brought to trial unless there is a solid body of evidence.
Now let's talk about the challenges of delivering justice in a country devastated by genocide in this space of time. Inside Rwanda, you're talking about the process of justice in Rwanda now? Yes, yes. Yes. Well, this is a different matter altogether. So after 1994, the country had been almost entirely destroyed after the genocide and the war. So the government had to first start rebuilding practically from scratch. And they've done that with a reasonable degree of success. You know, the infrastructure has been rebuilt, the courts have been rebuilt, staff had to be trained because many judges and lawyers and others had been killed in 1994. But even with all those efforts, the number, the sheer number of cases of genocide suspects was completely overwhelming. So in late 96, they started trying people for genocide in the courts, but the number was, was just impossible for the courts to deal with. So the government of Rwanda put in place a new system that they call Gachacha, which is a system of community-based courts to try genocide cases. And that process started in 2002, but then really got going in 2005. And between then and when the Gachacha court closed in 2012, these courts tried an extraordinary number of cases. I mean, according to the government statistics, it's almost 2 million genocide cases were dealt with by the Gachacha courts. Talking about the community-based Gachacha courts, how did they operate? You know there was a lot of concern in some quarters that these courts were little more than kangaroo courts that resulted in unfair trials and were marred by intimidation, by corruption and by flawed decision making. Well that's correct I mean I, I wouldn't describe them as kangaroo courts but there were some serious problems of the type that you've described. How they worked is that both the judges and the participants were all drawn from the local communities So even the judges, they didn't have any prior legal training. Some of them didn't even have a a, a very high level of of formal education. So you can imagine how difficult it was for them to try really complex cases relating to the genocide. On top of that, because they came from the local community, some of the judges themselves, and they may have had members of their family who were killed during the genocide, so it may have been pretty hard for them to exercise the kind of independence and objectivity that was needed. So what all this meant was that the standard of trials in Gachacha really varied enormously. In some cases, I think the judges were able to be objective and fair and weigh up the evidence properly, but in other cases, they didn't. And witnesses were intimidated on all sides, different participants were intimidated, the judges were also, there were cases of corruption, there were all kinds of problems that meant that a lot of people were tried and sometimes convicted after unfair trials. So really Gachacha, I I would say, has been a, a mixed picture. Now, what about members of the Rwandan Patriotic Front? That's the former rebel group that put an end to the genocide and is now the ruling party in Rwanda. It has been recorded, you know, that their troops killed tens of thousands of civilians as they took over the country in 1994. But have they ever been held accountable or faced a tribunal? 
Well, in, in, indeed, in 94, the RPF troops, as they were coming into the country, they killed tens of thousands of civilians, predominantly Hutu civilians. Now, these killings were not in any way equivalent to the genocide or comparable to the genocide, but they were serious crimes that qualify as war crimes and crimes against humanity. Now, until today, very, very few of those RPF members have been brought to justice for those killings. At the international level, none have been tried. Now, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda that we were talking about earlier did have the mandate to prosecute those crimes because in its mandate it was looking not only at crimes of genocide but also war crimes and crimes against humanity. But it has not prosecuted a single case of an RPF member. Inside Rwanda, there have been a small number, just over 30 cases that we're aware of, of RPF members who've been tried by Rwandan military courts for cases of killings. But most of these have not been senior officials, and they have got away with relatively light sentences. That was Karina Tetsakian, senior Africa researcher and Great Lakes expert at Human Rights Watch on the line from London, speaking to Khusiko Dingake. It's 20 minutes after 7 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today in 1994, rampaging troops kill Rwanda's acting premier, and 11 Belgian UN soldiers and a civil war erupts in Rwanda a day after a mysterious plane crash claimed the lives of President Juvenal Habyarimama of Rwanda and his Burundian counterpart Cyprien Ndayamira, Michael Kimmelin, Michael Kimmelman of Radio Today has more. The U.N. Security Council last night voted to condemn the escalating bloodshed and political chaos in Rwanda. U.N. officials said that at least 10 Belgian U.N. peacekeepers were executed by Rwandan soldiers. The peacekeepers were reportedly attempting to get to the site of the airplane wreckage that took the lives of the leaders of Rwanda and Burundi. U.N. sources said they cannot confirm those deaths. They also said that 17 Jesuit priests have also been killed. The Rwandan prime minister has been kidnapped and three cabinet ministers are missing this morning. Reports reaching the United Nations from Rwanda indicate there's a great deal of fighting and bloodshed. At the U.N. last night, one undersecretary general said the situation is very serious. The situation is, uh, is uh, very tense. And uh, uh, it uh, continues to be a cause for uh, concern. We, of course, are concerned about the security of uh, UNAMIR and uh, other international personnel. Uh, and as you know, there are other foreign communities also in Kigali. And so all the whole situation uh, is uh, very grave. There are some 2,500 UN peacekeepers in Rwanda. Most of them are Belgians. A U.N. spokesman said Belgium's cabinet met last night to take steps to ensure the safety of its nationals. The U.S. government called on the Rwandan army to show some restraint. U.S. officials said they are monitoring the situation as best they can and that a decision on a rescue mission for the Americans could be made sometime later today. Mike Kellerman, Radio Today in Washington. 
As Rwanda marks the 20th anniversary of an orgy of ethnic killing in which at least 800,000 people of their countrymen died, Belgium is hosting a conference on preventing mass atrocities. The genocide was sparked when a plane carrying the then Rwandan president, who was a member of the ethnic Hutu majority, was shot down on April the 6th in 1994. Everyone on board was killed. Rwandan Hutus blamed ethnic Tutsis for the attack and seeked immediate revenge. Hutu extremists killed neighbors, friends and family during a three-month rampage of violence aimed mainly at Tutsis. So our question this morning is, has the world learned anything from the Rwandan genocide? For your views, your opinions, your answers... Send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The South Africa of today is a much better place to live in than it was in 1994. That is the message the country's government wishes to instill in the minds of all citizens. As South Africans gear up for the May elections, a fifth round since the democratic dispensation, the country's government has sought to sell the South African good story to its citizens. The country's president, Jacob Zuma, recently released the government's 20-year review, which tracks advances and challenges over the past decades. Selina Dobong reports. The purpose of this 20-year review is to reflect on the legacy that democratic South Africa inherited, how the country has progressed in realizing the objectives it set itself in 1994, the challenges which still remain, and how those could be best addressed as the country enters the third decade of democracy. Minister in the Presidency, Collins Shabani, says the review does not shy away from the ills that remain. It also recommends how best to address our remaining challenges. We must exercise also our roles responsibly and with a view to projecting an accurate picture of our progress as a nation to date. We all have a responsibility to effectively mobilize our society behind these countrywide celebrations and build on our achievements. We have come a long way to create a modern state and a vibrant democracy. We still have a lot to do to improve the quality of life of the poor and the working class. Our country still faces the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment and inequality. Tamsang Lamakubela, who spoke on behalf of the South African Council of Graduates, says South Africans have adopted the culture of turning a blind eye to tangible changes that they are benefiting from. Those are the issues we're looking at to say from 1994 up until this year, has things really changed? or they've just remained the same, or we've stagnated. What prompts us to say those things? When we go on to our dinner, our bride parties, we tend to deal with issues in rather a very casual way, instead of saying, you know what, I have access to certain information in encyclopedia that actually proves that what you're saying is not true. So we believe that there is a good story to tell. And again, when we put it in context, ladies and gentlemen, 
What is a good story? You have a good story before you have a better story. Looking at where we've come from, in 1994, when you look at the number of students who had access into higher education, today we're sitting at just over a million students at our universities. In 1994, we were sitting at just over 200,000. The amount of money that is being spent to support higher education, we have seen how government, the private sector, even the civil society, working together, they have transformed and reduced the numbers of unemployed graduates in South Africa. Independent analyst Somadota Figeni says South Africa has detoured to the positives that are there, going on to say that the country suffers from a trust deficit. As I travel around the world, you'd hardly ever find a country where you can get into a radio, insult the president, insult the minister, insult the CEOs of companies, and then you go to the mall, then you sleep nicely, then you continue the following day. It's a sign of a robust democracy. But we often confuse such robustness as a sign of weakness. I can tell you that when I travel around the world, in early 90s we had droves of people, mainly white, who were leaving this country saying it's going to the dogs. They went to Australia, America, Canada. Quietly we've been told that there is a reverse migration, which means they went and tested the realities out there. This country has made massive progress in the area of infrastructure, in the area of social infrastructure in particular, in the area of electrification, water provision and so forth. And your social security, the situation could have been worse in terms of the safety net. So what is to be done? The first one is to create trust, which our diagnosis in the Development Commission report says South Africa suffers from a trust deficit. Anything we do amongst ourselves, there is always this lingering trust, and that makes it impossible for government, citizens, and civil society and business to do work. Freedom Month was also officially launched at the event that will be characterized by a nationwide program that will give South Africans an opportunity to be part of the celebrations in the build-up to the May the 7th national elections. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Tobong in Johannesburg. At 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. France says its ambassador in Kigali will attend today's commemorations marking the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide denying a boycott. Sudan is set to free some political prisoners and allow political parties to be active without restrictions as part of national reconciliation efforts. And the first offence witness for South African murder-accused Paralympian Oscar Pastorius is to take the stand this morning as his murder trial resumes after a week's break. Those are the stories making head lands. Thank you, Anne. Human Rights Watch says Christian militia fighters have killed at least 72 Muslim men and boys in two attacks in a remote southwestern corner of the strife-torn Central African Republic. 
The attacks in the village of Gwen, which occurred in February, came to light after the rights group interviewed survivors, mostly women, children and the elderly, who had sought refuge in a nearby village. The spiraling ethnic violence in the Central African Republic has led some observers to fear another genocide like that seen in Rwanda 20 years ago. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Louis Mudge, Africa researcher at Human Rights. Watch. No, no, I mean, you're absolutely correct. The Central African Republic is, is a very large country. This is a country larger than France. And of course, there's going to be no amount of troops that's going to protect every single corner in every village. 8,000 troops is certainly not sufficient. And uh, what we're seeing is that not even in Bangui are the African Union troops and the French troops capable of keeping real stability, as you've probably heard in the last week and a half, there's been real peaks of violence in the capital, Bangui. So what is needed is a more robust force. The actual number will never be enough, but what's needed is a more robust force both in the capital and in the major towns, and then to do patrols on the roads between those major towns. What we're finding is that in the towns and the provinces outside of Bangui, the French and African Union forces can keep a degree of stability. But the anti-Balaka militias, these are the militias that drove the Seleka out, they completely control the roads between these towns. They restrict freedom of movement. But worse than that, they continue to pillage and kill. Now, on April 1, that is on Monday, you know, the European Union confirmed that it would send 1,000 peacekeepers to the Central African Republic to provide support to the African Union and the French troops there. Do you think these troops will help the situation at all, or will it just be like a drop in the ocean? Well, it will have a positive net effect, that's for sure. We've been pushing the European Union for months now to rapidly deploy this force, and we applaud the April 1st decision, and we now urge them to get moving and get these troops on the ground as soon as possible. What these 1,000 European troops will do is they will free up uh, both French and African Union troops to get out into the provinces where they're needed most. The European troops will be well supplied. Their troops are very high caliber. So it is a good initiative. Frankly, we would have wished for more than 1,000, but since the European Union has taken so long to roll out, uh, we're at a point now where we'll take what we can get. But you know there have been reports of the militias, the anti-Balaka Christian militias attacking peacekeeping troops, both the African Union troops and the French. Isn't this a matter of grave concern? This is a matter of grave concern, and this is why we're urging action to be taken as swiftly as possible before this escalates out of control. There are anti-Balaka groups in the Bangui that feel emboldened, that feel that they have popular support. And they are attacking African Union troops, primarily the Chadians and the Burundians. The Burundian forces have been delegated to protect the last enclaves of Muslims. And so uh, many anti-Balaka feel that the Burundians have made alliances with the Muslims. The fact of the matter is this. There's two enclaves left in the capital of Bangui that have Muslims in them. The vast majority of those Muslims want to leave the country. These are Central Africans, and they fear for their life, and they want to leave. There is no reason for the anti-Balaka to exist anymore. They purport themselves to be a rebel group that was fighting for freedom under the Seleka. The Seleka are gone from Bangui in the West. 
and there's no reason for the anti-Balaka to continue. They need to be disarmed, and their fighters need to be reintegrated back into society. Are you saying that the Seleka militia is no longer operating, and that it is the anti-Balaka Christian militia that is perpetuating the violence? Absolutely. In Bongi and in the West, the Seleka have effectively been taken out of the town. Now, the Seleka and their pro-allies, these are herders from the region, their pro-allies, they have continued to attack Christian villages. We noted that in our most recent report. But in terms of control of the major towns, the Seleka have been taken out of Bongi in the West. They continue to control towns in the East, and a vast majority of Seleka fighters were able to escape through Cameroon and Chad. There are still a few Seleka fighters, roughly a thousand, in Bongi, but they are in military bases under protection of Miska troops, so they are not roaming the streets and killing people. That was Louis Mudge, Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, on the line from Kigali in Rwanda, speaking to Jose Dingake. It's 7.36 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The murder trial of Oscar Pistorius is due to resume today with the start of the defense case. Professor Jan Borta, a pathologist, is expected to take the stand at the High Court in Pretoria today, where proceedings were suspended for a week due to the illness of a judge's assistant. Pistorius shot dead his model girlfriend, Riva Stienkamp, who was in a locked toilet cubicle at his home on Valentine's Day last year. The 27-year-old athlete has said he mistook her for an intruder and acted to protect them both. The state argues it was premeditated murder. To talk to us more on this, we're, joined by, we're now joined on the line by Director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa, Professor Shadra Guto. Good morning, Prof, Prof, and thank you for joining us. Good morning to you and good morning to your listeners. Now, Professor Guto, is Oscar Pistorius fit to take take the stand, um, considering how he reacted to um, uh, 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 witnesses' accounts of uh, uh, what happened that day and how uh, Riva Steenkamp looked on that day? Well, um, it is very normal. He's the accused person. He has given a statement, and he has to be... Uh, really give a testimony which will be then um, cross-examined. And it is the first time that he's going to have to speak rather than just listen. Of course, he was very, very emotional when certain scenes and descriptions of what really took place uh, were presented in court, and he was vomiting, he was having problems crying, and so on. So it, it is possible it is going to be more of the same, but he has to testify, because otherwise his version um, of, of events in his statement cannot be taken at its face value. Prof, that was going to be my next question. Uh, the fact that, is it important for him to take the stand? It is very important for him if um, really he is the only person who was there, a real witness. The other was, of course, the deceased uh, uh, 
uh, girlfriend whom uh, he killed. And uh, from that point of view, he has to clarify a whole lot of things, not just leave it to evidence being given by others. So it is in his interest to do so and uh, to clear his name or to put sufficient doubt on the version that has been given by other witnesses. So I believe that um, uh, he will have to testify. Failure for him to testify uh, will really um, indicate that he, he was really lying about what really took place. Now, what should we expect from the defense, from uh, defense attorney uh, advocate Barry Rue? Well, advocate Barry Rue's role at this particular stage is to lead the evidence. In other words, to run through the version with him. And then he goes through rigorous cross-examination by the prosecution. And uh, it is at that point that um, I think things are going to be very, very tough indeed uh, for him and his witness. I mean, those who will testify um, uh, on his behalf, uh, giving a different version from what the prosecution presented and were rigorously also tested. So from that point of view, um, I think that... Uh, there's a lot to wait for. It is going to be more riveting, particularly when he himself is testifying and being cross-examined by the prosecution. But Advocate Rose's role has now reversed. Um, the prosecution was presenting the witnesses and then leaving them to Advocate Rose to really cross-examine them, and we saw what he was doing. So... We, we may expect something very close to what we saw, but on the other side. Prof, do you think that the evidence given by um, other witnesses in this particular case um, could get could be enough to get a conviction of, of the premeditated murder uh, 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 case? There's a case to answer. I think the witnesses so far being may be divided into three groups. That is, uh, neighbors who had the, the, you know, the screamings, who had the shots, and um, who really were very close to, 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 to the home. Uh, they have given uh, their testimony, and also uh, the managers of the estate and so on, security guards, so that is one group. Then we have, of course, uh, those who gave uh, testimony, mainly, mainly forensic medicine experts who are doing the investigation on the scene, measuring the distance, how the shots were, may have been, um, uh, you know, uh, triggered, and of course, the whole question of how the door was broken, uh, all these questions about uh, the door will come back. Why did uh, River have to lock the, the door to the bathroom when the two of them are in love and uh, have been in one bed? Uh, all of those will, uh, I, I believe, will be tested and were given. The third group were, of course, those who gave evidence about his character, 
with regards to the use of guns and uh, his temper, uh, you know, his temper and so on. And, and so those, that's another group that testify to his character and therefore showing that pulling a trigger was nothing new to him and so on. And all of those uh, were given. It is for him now to bring witnesses who will try to testify to the contrary. Uh, Prof, will all this evidence from all the different uh, uh, groupings that you've just mentioned, will this be enough for a conviction of premeditated murder? Yeah, if not um, really uh, properly negated by counter evidence, uh, so far what has been presented does uh, really indicate that uh, there is proof, and the proof is more or less beyond um, reasonable doubt, which is what is required. So the question here was whether there will be reasonable doubt created by Others. But so far, if the case were to stop immediately, I believe that the judge, uh, with the assistance of the assessors, uh, will uh, may convict um, the accused person. Professor Guto, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That was Professor Shadra Guto, Director for the Center for African Renaissance Studies at the University of South Africa, joining us on the line. Tabi Solohoko up next with our economics update. Nigeria has overtaken South Africa as Africa's largest economy. This after rebasing of Nigeria's gross domestic product, the GDP. Nigeria's finance minister, Ngozi Okonjo Iwaela, says last year's GDP totaled the equivalent of $510 billion. This is up by about 40% from the last estimate of $292 billion, overtaking South Africa's GDP of $33 billion. Kumbuzile Tabeta reports. Nigeria is now including previously unaccounted industries like telecommunications, information technology, music, airlines and Nollywood film production. Nigeria's recent growth rate of over 6% is better than South Africa, which has struggled to get beyond 3.5%. Analysts, however, have warned that the figures do not tell the whole story. They point out that GDP per capita rates are significantly higher in South Africa and that wealth distribution is extremely uneven in both countries. Zambia's decision to increase electricity prices by almost 29% for mining companies is likely to hit operations in Africa's largest copper producer. That's now according to the Chamber of Mines. The bulk of power supply agreement tariffs between the state power company Zesco and Copperbolt Energy Corporation have been increased to 6.84 Zambian cents to 5.31 Zambian cents. Copper exports account for more than 70% of Zambia's foreign exchange earnings and mining is a major employer of the southern African country of over 13 million people. Meanwhile, Zambia is uh, talking to investors this week about a possible second dollar bond. However, investors say it's a days of achieving sub-6% yields are past and that it may have to pay more than 8%.
Zambia was one of the first in a wave of African dollar bonds to launch in recent years and one of the best received, but it has underperformed other sub-Saharan African euro bonds in recent months. The Central African Republic has reached a preliminary agreement with the International Monetary Fund and other donors to receive about $176 million this year. The fund says it plans to grant the former French colony a loan just under one rapid loan. Both loans are subject to approval by the IMF's management and board. The rest of their money will come from the World Bank, African Development Bank and the European Union and France. Business activity in Egypt has slowed marginally last month after stagnating in February. The Egypt Purchase and Managers Index for the non-oil private sector stood at 49.8 points in March. This was down 50 in February. Ratings above 50 indicate expansion. Below 50, it's contraction. Financial indicators at the Sawa. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.54 South African rands at 8.69 Botswana Bulas at 5.17 Zambian Guachas. It's also trading at 0.60 to the British pound at 0.72 to the euro. Gold 1301 Platinum 1441 an ounce. Brand crude 106 23 cents a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Thank you, Tabiso. Now, Figile, Sri Lanka have taken the world's title 2020 tournament. Yeah. They are the champions. They are the champions. They've been missing it for some time now, mm. and it was a good send-off for Kumar Sangakara. South Africa's performance, not very great. No, it was, it was, it was expected. They always choke when it comes to the quarterfinals, semifinals, and also they did not calculate very well in the Duckworth and Lewis method, so it came to haunt them again. I think we need, to, we need to kind of move away from that mindset that when we get to certain stages of tournaments, we, we falter. Um, this is not only seen in cricket. It's also the same thing in football. It's the same thing in rugby. We need to change that mentality because I think it's just a, it's, it's a mind block. What can we do differently? I think the, the teams themselves, they... Whenever they, they they reach the quarterfinals of the of the events, they now think about the finals, not to think about the game at hand. You know, so they're already in the final and lifting up the trophy, so they forget about the team that they have to beat before they go there. <laughs> right. Let's hope the next tournament will be they'll we'll see a better performance. I hope so. Can you give us an update? We're serving off with tennis news in our sports update. Lithuania pulled out all the stops when they beat South Africa 3-2 in their Euro-Africa Group 2 second-round Davis Cup tie on Sunday. Not even the enthusiastic crowds at the Irene Country Club in Pretoria could cheer the home side to victory. Lithuania came out on Sunday a better team and proved their worth. South Africa came in on Sunday 2-1 up against the visitors after John Anderson and Raven Klassen won the doubles rubber on Saturday. A disappointed South African captain John Lafnid Yaga says all credit should go to Lithuania for coming to South Africa and taming the altitude and putting up a real good show. Diaga says they now need to regroup and work hard for 2015. 
South Africa remain in the Euro-Africa Group 2 for 2015. And on to cricket news, Kumar Sangakara shown in the 20-over international swan song to help Sri Lanka break their jinx and lift the Maiden World 2020 title with a comfortable six-wicket victory over former champions India on Sunday. The departing duo of Sangakara with 52 not out and Mahela Jawadini 24 contributed the top two scores for Sri Lanka, who chased down a 131-run victory with a target of 13 balls to spare. With this win, Sri Lanka finally managed to snap the streak of losing the finals of global events, having gone down in the decider of the 50-over World Cup in 2007 and 2011 and 2020 World Cup in 2009 and 2012. For India, who posted a below-par 134-4 despite Virat Kohli's breezy 77, the defeat denied the reigning 50-over World Cup and Champions Trophy winners a record-limited over treble. Meanwhile, the Proteas were dumped out of yet another major tournament. India won the semi-final match against South Africa in the ICC 2020 World Cup in Dakar by six wickets. The Indians needed 173 runs to win after South Africa made 172 runs. The man of the match, Virat Kohli, made an impressive 72 runs to keep the South Africans at bay. Sri Lanka sails into the second consecutive final of the ICC World 2020 final with a 27-run win over West Indies via Duckworth and Lewis method. South Africa captain, Favde Blissi, says he's proud of the manner in which his team fought in the whole tournament. 170 plus, I thought it was a really good score. So credit to our batters um, to put up a good title. The runs on the board in the final is what you what you ask for as a captain. And, and if you want to win a World Cup, you've got to make sure those small one percenters are happening for you. And so guys fought beautifully. I mean, we were a resilient bunch um, and we fought through every game. We fought tonight and I thought we put up a good fight. Um, like I said, India is a quality team and they deserve to be in the final. They've played some really good, consistent cricket throughout this World Cup. Finally, with local football South African Premiership side midfielder Diko Modisa's goal in the 76th minute was enough to hand Mamelodi Sundowns a 1 0 victory over their arch rivals Kaiser Chiefs in an entertaining Absa Premiership League match at FNB Stadium in Johannesburg. Even though it was a game of equal halves, Chiefs were left licking their wounds after countless misses by Kingston Gata and George Lebisi in a game that they should have at least drawn. Meanwhile, Chiefs coach Chad Baxter says he has learned a valuable lesson in his two matches against Sundowns. The two games we've had with Sundowns have taught us that goals win the games. I think that's, that's basically what's happening in both of the games. I thought, for the first 20 minutes of the game, I thought we were a little bit on the back foot. Sundowns were moving the ball quickly and threatening down the flanks. And I think once we got a hold of that, the game evened out and... Uh, I think then we took over and I think it was it was surprising to, to have them on the back foot for as long as we had them without scoring and that's the that's the name of the game. But they uh, they knocked they knocked Sundowns out of their rhythm and we had the game really where we wanted, but we didn't take our chances and that's that's the name of the game. So there's no good bitching about that. You've got to sharpen your knives and lick your wounds and, and get back to the job and just congratulate your opponents on the on the three points that they've taken and then we'll Run the rest of the season out. I'm sure you guys are highly delighted that you've got even more drama to look forward to. Despite picking up maximum points to stay level with log leaders Kaiser Chiefs, who have a better goal difference, Musimani is still envious of Chiefs' position, who still have a game in hand. Look, Kaiser Chiefs is a very, very strong team. And if, if I was in that position, I'd be more happy and better than being in a position of standard. Because 
It's only three points, eh? Doesn't mean anything, and it's a long way. So I would rather be on the other side than where I am. I'm chasing, I'm still chasing. But it's good, I think it's exciting, it's good for football. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Rwanda marks 20th anniversary of genocide. Kenya steps up its fight against Al-Qaeda-linked Al-Shabaab rebels and concerns over escalating violence in the Central African Republic. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. For myself, Lulu Gabu, and the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa 1. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine on the frequency 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa is Vicky Sampson with African Dream. Sometimes alone in the evening I look outside my window at the shadows in the night I hear the sound of distant crying, the darkness multiplying, and weary hearts denied. All I feel is my heartbeat, beating like a drum, beating with confusion. Thank mm-hmm. you.